We have announcements. Two weeks from Saturday, we're going to try to have a picnic. So we need to pray that it won't rain, and then everything will work out fine. So we're going to have a, a sign-up sheets out here for, for bringing food, and we need people to try to sign up that are going to try to come because the last time when we had our little um, family night, we didn't have anybody sign up. Of course, there was more than enough of everything, but we need to make sure... And we also need some help logistically uh, with some things. So I think there's some sign-up back there if somebody's got truck or two that they can use, and we can haul haul stuff up there. So, uh, And we don't have men's prayer breakfast in October because that's the weekend of the picnic. So that takes care, takes care of that. The other thing that's important is if you come to class Tuesday night, Thursday night, or on Sunday— whether you come regularly or irregularly, we need to have your email updates so that we can contact you. There's a sign-up sheet back in the fellowship hall so that if something comes up at the last minute, like flash flood or a freeze or different things like that that have happened in the past, that we can send out an alert to let people know that the class has been canceled. So... We need to keep announcing that for probably two or three more weeks to get that locked into people's minds. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to be spiritually prepared to focus upon the word, to study the word, to be refreshed by the word, to be strengthened by the word, because it is the word that sanctifies us. That's interesting. I just had occasion this last week to be looking at John 17, 17 again. And it struck me that what we have here is another one of those famous double entendres that John is so famous for. Because in the very beginning of the book, John says, in the beginning was the Logos. And then Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them by the Logos. And he's talking not just about the Word in terms of what we know as God's revelation, but also about himself. Same thing happens when you (coughs) look at worship, which is why I was going through this, in John chapter 4. And he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, time is coming when we will... Uh, worship by means of the Spirit and by, by means of truth. Then what happens? Jesus says, I am the truth. So that we worship by means of the Spirit. I mean, by means of the Logos and by means of Christ who is the truth. And of course, that also shows the interaction of the, all members of the Trinity in worship. So it just shows that there's so many different levels of scripture to comprehend and understand and think through. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one of us an opportunity to make sure that we're focused on the Lord and that we're spiritually cleansed and forgiven and prepare to study his word. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we can come together. We have freedom in this country because of our forefathers. When we think about what happened 
501 years ago with the uh, Reformation and the impact that that decision by Martin Luther had on his nation and on other nations as it transformed Western civilization, pulled us out of the quicksand of mysticism that had come to dominate the Middle Ages and open people's eyes to the truth of your word. And as an unexpected consequence of that brought forth all of the wonderful blessings of the modern world and modern civilization, above all is the freedom that we have, the freedom to meet, the freedom to study your word. And Father, we do pray that in the midst of all of the all the battles and all of the shenanigans and all of the chicanery that goes on in Washington, D.C., that your hand will work to bring to the fore men and women who understand the truth, will fight for the truth, and will be solid in their standing on your word, and that they will be uh, a real light in the darkness of government, and that as a result of their work that we will have our freedoms maintained and preserved. Father, we pray that as we study tonight about the church and church leadership that you might encourage us and strengthen us because if the pastor's role is to feed the sheep, then the sheep's role is to be fed. And that is an important responsibility in each life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying about the role of church leaders and church government in First Peter chapter 5. And tonight we're going to look at something for this week and next week to try to understand what it, this means when we talk about the pastor. What does a pastor do? Now, most of you are pretty squared away, but that, that's an interesting question. You go out and you talk to the hoi polloi and you say, well, what, what, what does a pastor do? Who knows what kind of uh, uh, responses you might get. Some people... Think of a pastor as some sort of religious social worker. I know I had a, a relative who, uh, as I was dealing with different health problems with my parents, made the comment, well, you ought to know what to do. You're a pastor. You do all this kind of social work. I thought, wrong kind of pastor. So others think of a pastor as a psych religious psychologist or a counselor, community organizer even, or activists that represent their community in uh, and before the local government. There's a segment of our Christian community that puts that burden on their pastors. That's a primary responsibility for them. I don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. Others think of them as public relations men or spiritual babysitters. Others look at a pastor as a fundraiser. And others who look at him as like the CEO who is primarily overseeing the church administration, publication of newsletters and prayer lists and other things like that, uh, spending a lot of time doing hospital visits and home visits. And others think the pastor's just... I remember a pastor who was really cynical that I met many years ago, He'd been a pastor for three or four years, and he said, I'm tired of telling people I'm a pastor. They look at me like, like I'm a third gender. Some people think that pastors are just monks who spend their whole time locked away in prayer all week and come out in the sunlight on Sunday morning to deliver a 10-minute homily. And even among those who are in Bible churches, you often hear people say, well, that was so pastoral. What do you mean by that? I've never seen a definition of that in Scripture. A lot of what Christians think of as, quote, pastoral has been shaped by church culture, not necessarily by the Bible. So we need to go to the Scripture to find out what a pastor does. But before we do that, I thought I would read to you. I ran across this years ago. It's been modified and changed and adapted over time, but it describes the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. 
He condemns sin roundly, but he never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $400 a week. He wears good clothes, drives a new car, buys good books, and donates $300 a week to the church. He's 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. Above all, he's really good looking. The pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face. He has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. Now, my first church was like that. It was an evangelical church that was a blend of people from different denominations. And if I spent all my time studying, I would hear them complain and gripe about the fact that I wasn't with the people. And the next week I was gone visiting people, then they were complaining that I was never in the office. I mean, you just couldn't make, and that's, you know, the sad thing is that's true in a lot of churches. And they don't really, Bob Salstrom, who was preached my ordination sermon, and at the time, he was a crusty old curmudgeon, just a great old retired pastor. He was the head of the placement uh, at Dallas Seminary, alumni and placement. And he took me aside and he said, now, Robbie, you need to understand that about 80% of the churches that come to Dallas Seminary looking for a pastor don't deserve one. So don't get caught in that trap. So the perfect pastor always has time for his church council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization. He's always busy evangelizing the unchurched. He's, and the perfect pastor is always in the next church down the road. Now, if your pastor doesn't measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of your list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you'll receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. The sad thing is, is that very few churches pay much attention to what the Bible says about the role of a pastor. And even in Bible churches, we have to define these terms. So that's what we're uh, starting to look at this, this evening is... What does shepherding mean? If pastor is just another term for shepherding, what does a shepherd do? We're not talking about the literal meaning of a shepherd, but we have to understand that before we can understand the figurative meaning of a shepherd. So we'll spend most of our time tonight uh, looking at the Old Testament. Now, we we have looked in the past at our key passage, our our passage we're we're focused on, that in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, the elders who are among you, I exhort who am a fellow elder, Peter writes. That's the word presbyteros. It's the noun. Then he says, shepherd the flock. That's the verb. The, the noun pastor is only used one time in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians four eleven, and we'll get to that probably uh, next time or the next week. So it's a command to elders and they are to shepherd the flock which is among you. So you have to figure out what does that metaphor mean, serving as overseers. And so that's the word episcopo. The noun is episcopos, where we get our word uh, episcopalian or episcopal form of government. It has to do with an overseer, and it came into Latin. It dropped the E at the beginning, so it's episcopos or bishop, and then that, that's how it came into uh, Uh, came over into English. Now, what we have to do is go back to the Old Testament to look at what the Bible teaches about the shepherd. And the reason we do this is because when Jesus shows up and refers to himself as the good shepherd in John, the Gospel of John, there's already a very solid understanding of what a shepherd is supposed to be doing in terms of leadership. It was a term that was developed in the Old Testament. And so we need to go back and and examine that. Now, what we've done so far is we've looked at terminology. We looked at the church, that this is a new term, new concept, 
the term itself is a general term used for any kind of assembly, and so it applied to Israel as the congregation of the Lord in the Old Testament. But when Jesus talks about it as something in the future, that on this rock I will build my church, he told Peter, then that meant this is something future, something new and distinct, and at that point it began to pick up a new a, a new term. We saw that the, secondly, when the, the church began, it began on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, about 10 days after the ascension. Third, we looked at how leadership developed in the early church as described in Acts. And there we saw that it starts off with the apostles as the authority, but apostles and prophets were temporary offices. And as they were beginning to fade, which you see by the time you get to Acts 15, you start seeing the emphasis on the apostles and the elders. And then by the time you get to the end, you see the elders meeting with the Apostle Paul at Miletus. So that becomes the primary name uh, for the uh, for the early ch- church leadership, even though those three terms, elder, pastor, bishop, are synonyms of each other. We talked a little bit about how the leadership developed in the early centuries of the, of the, of the church age and the different models. There's three basic models. There's the Episcopal form, there's the Presbyterian or elder form, and then there's the congregational form. And one aspect of that is what we might call the single elder or single pastor view. And that's typically a a Baptist uh, influence. And by Baptist, I don't mean Southern Baptist or conservative Baptist. I mean those, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? Two things make a Baptist a Baptist. Number one, a Baptist believes in the separation of church and state. And number two, a Baptist believes in baptism by immersion after a person's profession of faith, not before. Doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, doesn't have anything to do with the Bible, doesn't have anything to do with anything else. Historically, what made a Baptist a Baptist was those those very two things. Because up until you had these three or four men under Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich break out and say, no, 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 we can't do this infant baptism anymore because the Bible talks about adult baptism on profession of faith. Until that happened... Uh, there wasn't a break from the church-state identification. And that was one reason why the Anabaptists were viewed with such hostility by the governments as they were, they were breaking this church-state identification. So you had the rise of the Anabaptists, and so we are Baptist. That's our ideological, theological heritage. We're not Presbyterian, we're not Roman Catholic, we're not Lutheran, we have a Baptist heritage, and that's also within the DNA chain of the churches that we have, most of you here, have been influenced by. That doesn't mean we're part of any Baptist denomination, but we have those two beliefs uh, that are very fully in common. So we're looking at this fifth question we'll be spending time on, what are the scriptural terms used for biblical uh, biblical leaders? And as I pointed out last time, and I've changed up, changing up these definitions a little bit, an elder, I think, refers to the office or the spiritual maturity of the person in the office. It's someone who is mature, someone who's older, but I don't think it just focuses, in this case, on, on chronological age as much as spiritual maturity. Bishop overseeing, that's the function of the office, and pastor emphasizes the role and responsibility, which is to feed the sheep through teaching. So we're focusing on this fifth question. Now let's look at the Old Testament a little bit. We've spent a lot of time over the years in the Old Testament looking at at how that informs us on New Testament language. The Hebrew w- verb that we find, what's interesting is the verb is turned into a, a participle, which means it's used as a noun, but it's still the verb used uh, participially as a noun, has the idea of feeding, grazing, 
pasturing. Sometimes you'll see that one translation, as we'll look at here uh, below in Genesis 9:27 or 29:7, the uh, New King James Version will say to feed the sheep, feed them, and the New American Standard translates it to pasture them. Genesis 30, 30, 31, 30, 36, 37, 2, Joseph is pasturing or he is feeding the flock. So what that tells us is the literal meaning has something to do primarily with providing nourishment for the sheep, literal sheep, and is taking them to pastures where there's plenty of, of good grass and forage and it is also taking them where there's water. So those are the things that, that will be brought out here. But what we see, even from Genesis, is that the ultimate pattern to understand what shepherding is, is going to be God. God is the, the eternal shepherd. And we see this at the end of Genesis in two key verses, we see this metaphor used to describe God in Genesis 48:15, where Jacob is blessing Joseph and says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me, and the word there translated fed is ra'ah. It's the word, the God who has shepherded me all my life long to this day. So I, I think that's a better way to put it because it, it's, there, there's the nourishing feeding aspect is primary, but there's something else going on there. There's some other facets to the meaning of that word that we're going to see that it has the idea of oversight and leading and guiding and protecting. All of those are part of that. We'll see how that is developed in other passages. Then we have on the bottom of your of the screen there Genesis forty nine twenty four which I thought was a fascinating verse here. Uh, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Parenthesis, a name for the God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd. So it's calling God by a name, by a title of the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now the word there for stone is the Hebrew word eben, we have that in the word Ebenezer, which is sometimes translated a rock. And so what we see as the term rock is often used as a term for God, indicating he is immutable, he's immobile, he's steadfast. Uh, you can count on him. He's unshakable. He is always faithful. All of that is bound up in that picture image of this rock. It's not a small rock. This is talking about a a huge, huge boulder. So this image pictures God shepherding his people. He is pictured that way in the wilderness. We'll see a couple of verses that, that talk about that. God leading Israel through the wilderness. That is a picture of God being a shepherd to his people. So it brings out the elder, the, that aspect of leadership. For example, We'll see that in Psalm 78:52, or 78, 70, and 71, I believe. And then uh, there are other passages where we read that God led Israel into captivity in Lamentations 3:2. So that's a function of God as a shepherd who's bringing correction and discipline on his flock, on the sheep. And so that's a function, as we'll see, of the rod, where we hear in a well-known passage in Psalm 23 that thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And it has both a positive and a negative aspect to that. So God is pictured as a shepherd and also that he will be the shepherd of Israel in the millennial kingdom when they come into their kingdom. And so he is pictured as one who will finally bring them to safe and secure uh, pastures, and he will provide for them throughout all of the future. And this, so if this is the picture of God from the very beginning, then one of the things we learn from him is that he is, 
He is one who comforts us and he provides security for us. And that comes out a lot in the passages that we're going to look at. So I want you to turn with me to probably one of the most well-known passages dealing with the Lord as our shepherd, and that's Psalm 23. Six verses, one of the most favored psalms. Many, many people have memorized this. It is a psalm that focuses on the Lord, and his name is used twice in the psalm. It's used in verse 1, Yahweh, my shepherd. And it's used again I will at, in verse 6 in the last line, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. That forms an inclusio. You remember an inclusio is like you bracketed something. You set it at the beginning, you set it at the end, and it ties the whole package together. So this emphasizes that this psalm is all about Yahweh's provision for us and all that he has given us, which is what's emphasized in the very first verse. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have no needs. I lack for nothing. And so then the rest of the psalm is going to is going to develop that. But our focus here of looking at this psalm is not to look at it from the vantage point of exposition or exegeting it, but what do we learn about the role of God as a shepherd? Because God takes care of each one of us as members of his flock. So let's just read it through, and then I'll go through it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what are some things that we learn about God as a shepherd as we look at Psalm 23? Well, first of all, we learn that the, as our shepherd, he, in verse 2, says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. So what's going on here? It's an interesting word here that we find cropping up in some different places for lying down. It's the Hebrew word ravatz. And it means to lie down or to rest, but not like you go in and you take your afternoon nap, but it's emphasizing that you are being able to relax and go to sleep because you know you're in a totally secure and protected environment. There's no threats. There's no problems. Everything is, is secure. And we see that. For example, in passages like Isaiah 14:30, the firstborn of the poor will feed and the needy will lie down in safety. Now, this isn't talking about now. This is talking about in the millennial kingdom, in the time of perfect righteousness. The needy will lie down in security. I will kill your roots with famine, and I will slay your remnant. What God is saying there is I'm going to destroy your enemies so you can lie down in security. In Ezekiel 34, 15, we read God saying, I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down. Very similar language to what we have here in verse 2. Making me lie down in green pastures. God takes us to these green pastures where they're lush and there's plenty to eat, plenty to nourish us spiritually, and then we can lie down there. It also emphasizes the idea of resting in God, that, that we talk about the faith rest drill. Faith is our trust in God, but rest is when we can completely relax in his provision and his plan and his purpose, that no matter what's going on around us, we can lie down and rest and trust in God. We're not overwhelmed by anxiety or fear. 
We're not worried about the future because we know we're in God's hands. And so God is the one who gives us that, that security. Another important verse where, where this is used is in Genesis 49.9 in Jacob's prophecy about Judah and that the lion of Judah would come from his descendants. He says that the lion of Judah lies down as a lion. Well, the lion, as the ruler, the king of the beasts, lies down, and nothing's going to threaten him. He lies down totally relaxed and secure because he knows that that he is the meanest one around, and he doesn't have anything to worry about. In Isaiah 11.6, talking about the millennial kingdom again, it says that the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Now, that doesn't happen today. That tells us we're not in the kingdom at all. And we're not in any way, shape, or form. The leopard will lie down with the young goat so that the young goat is totally safe and secure. So that's an emphasis there. It's when God leads us to these green pastures, we're secure. And there's just so many applications there that what provides that security is going to be the nourishment that God gives us. And for us, that's the word of God. That security comes from understanding and acting on the Word of God. When the Word of God says hear or listen, that's not just getting your ears stimulated and having uh, and being able to hear the words audibly that somebody pronounces. To In the Bible, when God says hear, it means hear and respond a certain way. It means listen and do what I tell you. It doesn't just mean you know, hear the words and then go on about your business and forget what I said, it means to do it. And the same thing is true with the word remember. When God says remember, he's not just talking about having a, having recall of who you are, but remember and do something about it. For example, when the thief on the cross is talking to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom, he doesn't just say, have nice thoughts about me. He means, remember, he wants to be saved. He wants to be there in the kingdom. So, the leopard shall lie down with the goat. He is going to have relaxed security and be fed by the word. The second aspect of what a, what a shepherd does, what God does as a shepherd, is he leads us. So, first of all, we saw, saw that he causes us to lie down and to be relaxed and provide security, which comes from the presence of his word, nourishment. He provides all of our needs. We shall not want. Second, he leads me, and this is the word nahal, which has a range of meaning, so it's actually used twice here. It's used at the end of verse 2, he leads me beside the still waters, and then in the middle of verse 3, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Some versions translate that lead and guide. Others translate it both, way, both times with the, same, with the same word. So he leads me. So God is the one who leads us, and he leads us as believers through his word. He doesn't get up every morning and give us a, a list, of, a to-do list for the day. He leads us through his word so that we're forced again and again to go to his word, to read about him, to learn about him. And we're, we're impressed, as Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, that, that his mercies are new every morning. And so every morning we re, reconfirm our relationship with the Lord and we refocus on him and are reminded of his faithfulness to us. So he leads me, and where he leads us is beside the still water. So we have this great image of green fields for food and also plenty of water besides these still still waters, uh, emphasizing not the turmoil and chaos of living in a corrupt world, but that everything is calm and orderly, and that God is providing everything for us. And what we learn from this is that as a spiritual shepherd, God provides for us the spiritual food necessary so that we will be relaxed and we will be completely nourished upon his word. 
Third thing that we learn is at the beginning of verse 3, he restores my soul. Now, we hear a lot of talk in our culture and have for the last 150 years, ever since Freud, that, that we have a soul problem. We do have a soul problem, and it's the result of sin. But Freud, who claimed to have authority over the soul based upon his uh, incomplete and incompetent observations of the soul, came up with the wrong conclusions. The one who is able to restore our soul and to solve the problem is God, not the psychologist, because the psychologist is guessing just as much as you might be. So the idea of restoring here is to return. Now, that happens in two ways. Our soul has gotten cut off from God in spiritual death, so it's restored to God when we are saved, when we trust in the Old Testament, when they trust in the promise of the Messiah. And in the New Testament, it's restored when, they, when, when we believe that Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah, and he died on the cross for our sins. And so God is the one then who is able to restore our soul. So it starts with justification, where we're made a new creature in Christ, and then it continues through sanctification, a separate process where we are uh, matured through spiritual growth. God is the only one who can restore our soul. Fourth, he guides us, and this is the next line in verse 3. He leads me or guides me in the paths of righteousness. This is, again, a repeat of the word we saw at the end of verse 2. He leads me. It indicates that the part of the role of the shepherd is to lead and to guide. But in these passages, first of all, he's leading to nourishment and refreshment. Second, he is leading in the direction of a righteous life, how to live in righteousness in conformity with God's plan for his namesake. What that means is God's the standard for righteousness. His righteousness is the standard of his character, and we are to live according to that standard, which means we are set apart unto him, which means we're holy, sanctified, uh, set apart in the uh, progress of our spiritual growth. Psalm 31.3 says, you are, for you are my rock and my fortress. Again, that word for rock takes us back to what I just read in Genesis 49, that he is our rock, our stone. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. And that's where you have nahal in both of those terms. And so it's, there it's translated two different ways. He is the, but it, it, that re repetition reinforces God is the one who guides us. So that's the role of God. How does he guide and direct us today? Well, God guides and directs us providentially. Now, a human pastor can't do that. But secondly, God guides and directs us through his word. And that's the role of the pastor is to open up the word of God so that people can use it effectively in their lives as to guide their thinking and to guide their, their, their lives. Fifth, <clears throat> the direction where we are guided is the paths of righteousness. Psalm 17.5 says, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. The word can refer to a path, a way, a track, a course of life. And so God is directing us and guiding us toward a course of life, a course of uh, of uh, righteousness. This um, I idea is essential to much of the Proverbs living in the way of the Lord. It's a synonym for this. Then six, we come to the rod. At the end of verse four, your rod and your staff they comfort me. So a shepherd would have two things. He would have a shepherd's uh, rod or staff that had a crook in it so that he could reach over and grab a sheep if it got caught in 
some sticker bush or in a tight spot or whatever, he could use that to grab the lamb or the sheep and to pull it in, out of harm's way. And also a, a stick that he could use to fight off uh, intruders, fight off wild animals. This is what David did. And we'll look at that passage in a little bit, but that's what David did as a shepherd, which exhibits the protection aspect. As David says that as a young shepherd, what he did on a regular basis was that whenever the bear or the lion would come in to try to steal the sheep, it was his responsibility to stop them. And he didn't say, wait a minute, I've got to go get my Tavor. I left it in my backpack or I'm going to have to get my my um, uh, AR or my M16 or whatever he goes and he grabs just his club, his rod, and he would fight and kill the carnivore. Now, that takes a man of both moral and spiritual courage to be able to do that and to understand what the truth is. And so this is also mentioned in Micah 7.14, as Micah, who writes about the same time as Isaiah, is... uh, it's a prayer to God, shepherd your people with your staff. Sometimes it was not only part of protection, but it might be used to uh, whack an animal on the rump to get it moving or something like that. So it had a corrective aspect to it as well. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage who who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. So what do we see when we look at all of these different aspects of of God's work as a shepherd? Well, the primary emphasis that we see here is that of of leadership, of taking care of, having a responsibility for that, that flock, and that that leadership is marked by, number one, provision. He's going to take care of them. He's going to provide food and water, uh, provide nourishment for them. He is going to protect them from marauding animals, and he is going to lead them to the places they need to go in order to have, have nourishment. And so we learn that God providentially protects us through his sovereign oversight, that he protects us indirectly through his word, which means that if you're going to be protected by his word, then you need to know his word, okay? doesn't do us any good to just show up in Bible class uh, three times a week if we haven't internalized his word. That's, that's, his, that's the protection. We need to know his word. So he protects indirectly through his word, He provides his word to protect us from false teachers, to protect us from heresy, to protect us from sin, because sin wars against the soul. And what does Jesus do when he confronts temptation at the beginning of his ministry, when the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness and Satan began to tempt him? In those three temptations, each time there's a temptation, Jesus quoted from Scripture. It's the word of God that's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, not the abstract theological principle that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we need to know the word of God and just grab a phrase that we've learned or or maybe quote a whole promise and, and apply that. So this imagery of God as a shepherd gets developed uh, in the Old Testament and then we see it in the New Testament. Now, one of the things that I want you to think about as, as I go back uh, through this passage, let me see here where I am, and we look back through this passage, we see that there's a focus on God as the one who is, um, he, he's the one who causes us to lie down and to rest. He leads us. He restores us. There's recovery from spiritual death first, and there's recovery from the devastating effects of sin. He guides us uh, into the paths of righteousness. His rod and his staff, uh, they comfort us, all of those things. And so there's uh, uh, leading, there's feeding, there's security, 
There's protection, there's guiding, there's restoration, and there's correction. Sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, doesn't it? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is, and is profitable for teaching. That's the food, that's the nourishment, that's the green pastures and the water. For reproof, that's the rod and the staff for reproof and correction. And for instruction in righteousness, guiding us in the paths of righteousness. Interesting how that just sort of fits together, isn't it? See, that's what God is doing. And the point I'm making here is when we take the the metaphorical application of shepherding as it's applied to God, and as we'll see with others in the Old Testament, and we connect that, we see that the primary focus that we have in, in shepherding is not touchy-feely. It's not administration. It's not counseling, although I think that there are times when when a pastor, somebody's got a situation, and they say, well, help me understand this. You've got new babies. We'll talk about that later. You've got spiritual babies who haven't been around long enough to learn anything, and they have situations. They just want to ask a question and get some guidance, and so all of that's part of the role of, of a pastor teacher, but you're feeding with his word. That's the role. It's that nourishment through his word, and that leadership comes from the Word of God. Another example, that first example is Psalm 23. The second example of God as a shepherd is in Isaiah 40, verse 11. Now, Isaiah 40, verse 11, this is one of those great chapters that we have in the Old Testament. It, it, it ends with Isaiah 40, 31, which is a great passage talking about those who wait on the Lord that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But there's a lot more in this chapter. That's verse 31, and I'm talking about verse 11. And so it starts off, and remember, this is in the prophetic section that really focuses on, on the servant of God. It starts off, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. And so there, it's talking about the comfort that God will bring to Jerusalem. Remember, his prophecy is talking about their future destruction at the time of the, uh, uh, when Babylon will uh, conquer them. And so now he's talking about the comfort that will come as God restores them and brings them back, uh, back to the land. And there's the prophecy in verse 3 related to the voice crying in the wilderness, which starts to point us toward the Messiah. In verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And then there's a reminder that that which has eternal uh, stability is the word of God. All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And so as the focus throughout this chapter begins to uh, narrow onto what will happen when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, he will establish his his rule, uh, his arm shall rule for him, behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, he will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs uh, with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with with young. So we have the word feed in the first line up there, and then the word shepherd. Both of them are based on the Hebrew verb ra'ah. They both have to do with this action. And so it tells us that what God does is he's going to feed or, or pasture he will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will take the, the those who have gone through the tribulation, those who have been scattered, those who have been um, beaten up and who are immature and young, they need special attention. And the application is when you look at, at a pastor or good teacher, 
then what that pastor does is understand that there are those who are spiritual babies and they haven't learned much and those who are more mature and so special attention is given to those who are younger and need that uh, to grow. Now let's look at a couple of examples in the Old Testament. The first example is Moses, and we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, as God is beginning to uh, bring Moses to the point of leadership. And so after Moses has killed the Egyptian and the Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, he flees to Midian, and that is where uh, he's going to see, uh, in chapter 3, he sees the burning bush and decides to turn aside, and so he schleps up the mountain to find out what's going on with the burning bush. But here, we're talking about what happens during those 40 years when he's shepherding. Now, the priest of Midian, this is Jethro, this is, he'll be his father-in-law, had seven daughters, and they came, and now the English says to draw water, and the Hebrew said to draw water. But when the uh, rabbis who translated this into Hebrew translated it, they translated it with poimino, which is the Greek word for shepherding. And so they see that this is part of bringing water to the sheep is shepherding. So again, like we saw in Psalm 23, feeding in terms of solid food and liquid nourishment is part of of taking care of the sheep. It's providing nourishment for the sheep. And then we have the bad shepherds who came and ran them away, and Moses stood up for them and watered their flock. And then we look over and we see another picture of this in chapter 3, verse 1, when Moses is shepherding the flock. This is when he sees the burning bush and he's going to lay aside and go uh, up the mountain to find what's going on there. So he's tending the flock of Jethro. So he's taking them to pasture where they can be fed. That seems to be a primary part of what is in this word to shepherd. It has to do with leading or guiding with a view towards providing nourishment and and provision for them as well as uh, protection for them. Now we see this again in the next great example, which is in which is David in First Samuel seventeen, and there we see it applied to to David. Now here we learn a little bit more about the responsibility of a shepherd. This is a scene in 1 Samuel 17, 34 and 35 when David has brought uh, lunch to his brothers who are on the front line and this is already well into the many days that Goliath is coming out and beating his chest and telling the Jews that they're a bunch of losers and that he's going to whip up on them and and uh, they, if they have the guts, they'll send out a champion, but nobody will come out, not even Saul. And so David hears this challenge, and first of all, we know he's got a spiritual focus because he said, how, how come this uncircumcised Philistine is allowed to do this? And by saying uncircumcised, he immediately puts that into the context of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, that this land is our land. This land was given to us by God and sealed in that covenant with Abraham. And so now we've got somebody who's not a part of the covenant claiming it for his own. And so he takes the initiative to go to Saul and say, I, I can do it. I can, I can uh, defeat him. So Saul then says, well, you're just a kid. You're not even a military age yet. So military age is about 20. So David was probably around 18 or 19, just wasn't ready yet to go into military service. And so David says, well, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. Now, let me point out another word. Remember when we were studying in in worship in Genesis 2 and God puts Adam in the garden and he says to to tend to serve and to keep and I said that's the word shamar which means protect something okay that's the word we have here 
Your servant used to keep, Shamar, keep his father's sheep. He used to watch out for them. And how is what's the context here? He's protecting the sheep from any enemies that might come in. So that's why I said in Genesis 2 that there's a hint there that there may be something that would come into the garden that wasn't supposed to be there, and Adam had a role to protect. So David says he used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or bear would come and take a lamb out of the flock, I would go after it. I'm not going to ask for volunteers to see how many of y'all would do this, okay? I would take out after it and deliver the lamb out of its mouth. Now, this isn't quite the same scale, but how many of y'all have had a little terrier that gets a hold of a, of a tennis ball, and you want to try to take that tennis ball out of that terrier's mouth? You, you run the risk of getting bitten. Well, just expand that. Uh, uh, geometrically and you have a, a lion or a bear that's got dinner in its mouth and you're trying to take the dinner away and you're just some puny little Jewish boy. So uh, he goes after it and strikes it with his rod and delivers the lamb from its mouth and when it rose up against me I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. So first of all he, he cold cocks this lion or bear and gets the animal, the the sheep, the lamb free. And then he gets into a second round where he goes after it and grabs the animal by its beard and then brains it with his club. David was tough. He had great courage, but his courage is in the Lord. And he says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. So this is showing that the role of a shepherd is also to protect the sheep. That means he's got to be skilled and trained at protecting, identifying enemies and protecting. And when we transfer that over to a a pastor, he's got to teach about false teaching and the errors that creep into the church. And he has to focus on those things and contend uh, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So this gives us an example. Another example of shepherd used with David is in Second Samuel 5.2, which is the passage we have diverted from as we're in our study of worship on Tuesday nights. Uh, we covered five and six and we're somewhere in there. Second uh, Samuel 5, 2, also in time past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, so there was divine revelation, which we know of from first Samuel 16, you shall shepherd my people Israel. Now this takes the term shepherd and applies it to a ruler in Israel. You will shepherd. So all of these, uh, all these characteristics we've looked at already now apply to what makes a good leader. You will shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold uh, from following the sheep, this is Second Samuel 7, 8, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So <coughs> there's a sense that the pastor's the ruler. The shepherd is the ruler. Now, he doesn't rule. This is, we'll get into this when we get into the New Testament. He doesn't rule and lord it over like the Gentiles do. He doesn't rule from a position of arrogance from a position of being a servant and from a position of humility. <clears throat> One last passage on David in Psalm 78:70. We, we read, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the ewes that the young had brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So it's that rulership responsibility that's reinforced there. Now, when we get into the prophets, we get into Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. 
We have mostly negative examples of a shepherd. Jeremiah has a positive one in Jeremiah 3.15. And I will give you shepherds. This is talking about in the millennial kingdom, after he's brought them back, after restoration into the land, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, this is an important passage because it tells us that feeding is informational, that feeding isn't hugging and caring and psychoanalyzing. It is giving them biblical knowledge and understanding discernment that comes from it. So that's what a good shepherd is going to do. So the point that I keep seeing here is that shepherding involves feeding, nourishing, guiding. All of this is done uh, through the Word. Now we get into the negatives, and we'll see just the opposite. Uh, the false shepherd, Jeremiah 2.8, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? See, the priests are being condemned here as false shepherds, and they don't say, where is the Lord? Because they don't care. What happened uh, by the end of the 7th century B.C., the 600s, is that the priests are ignorant. They don't know anything. See, this is what happens when churches aren't taught the Word and where procedures and uh, promises are not explained. And that's where we are. You can go to most churches today, and there's not a whole lot of explanation that goes on. People do things that they've always done, but they don't know why. They don't know the Word. They don't read the Word. Uh, the Word is not hidden in their heart so that they are just having basically a great social club and maybe they're running a pep rally for Jesus, but that's about as far as it gets. These prints were much worse. They were leading the people into idolatry, but that's what happens. Once you get away from actively worshiping God and teaching about him, then it's easy to bring in the, golden, the metaphorical golden calf and lead the people into idolatry. So the priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers, that is the shepherds, that's the literal term there, the shepherds also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. See, they're bringing in not only idolatry, but they're bringing in the fertility religions of Baalism. And they walked after things that did not profit. In other words, leading them in the wrong direction. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. See, shepherding has to do with leading, but in the right direction on the right basis. They have turned them away on the mountains, which is where they would have the high places. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. See, God takes us to still waters where we lie down and rest, but here there's no resting place. Uh, Jeremiah 10.21, For the shepherds have become dull-hearted. They're spiritually blind and their heart have hardened hearts. Why? They haven't sought the Lord. They are seeking everything else but not the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper and their flocks shall be gathered. And then in Jeremiah 23, there's a, a, a judgment announced on the shepherds. Jeremiah 23, uh, 1 through 4. And God's promise at the end in verse 4 is uh, what will happen when he gathers the remnant of my flock out of all the countries. That's the beginning of verse 3. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. Again, he repeats that shepherds feed the sheep. You have a lot of false shepherds mentioned in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. You can read through, and it's again a condemnation of the false shepherds. And uh, Ezekiel is commissioned to prophesy a judgment against the shepherds of Israel because they have uh, fed themselves. They've been self-centered. And then it has this whole uh, imagery here, you eat the fat. Who got the fat? God got the fat. Why? The fat was because God had blessed them. And so the animals had plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and they grew fat. And so when they would go to the altar, they would give the fat and to the Lord. 
And so they, the priests are taking the fat, so they are defrauding God of what was rightfully his. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool instead of using the wool for other uh, aspects of, uh, of providing for the poor. They're using it to clothe themselves. Uh, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You're not providing for the flock. And then it says, The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Wrong kind of ruling. Okay, the point is that a pastor is one who's going to feed and so that the weak are strengthened and so that those who are spiritually sick are going to be healed and they're going to have the biblical content to restore themselves. That goes back to Psalm 23, you restore my soul. And so then it, there is a restoration. That's what's described here, being brought back. Those who are driven away are brought back. That which is lost is sought. And so this is the role of the pastor. But he does this through the teaching of grace, the teaching of forgiveness, the teaching of the spiritual life and forgiveness. So our conclusion here is that what we learn about the shepherd is that he leads, he guides, he feeds, he secures, he guides and restores and protects and corrects. And for the New Testament pastor, that's the imagery. And he does this through the Word of God. So we'll come back next time. We're going to get into some of the great shepherd passages because the noun pastor is only used of... of a leader in the church one time is a noun the other times all refer to the lord jesus christ is the great shepherd of the sheep so we need to understand that before we get into some other aspects trying to understand the role the function the purpose of the pastor in the local church father thank you for the opportunity to study these things to reflect upon them to be reminded of biblical leadership that's based on humility and grace orientation, not what's in it for me, but uh, is totally focused on serving others. And that, that f the real source of restoration and healing and health is your word. It nourishes us, it restores us, and it is the focal point of real biblical ministry. Strengthen us with your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.